Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. All right. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How are you this morning? Oh, come on. Good morning, everyone. There we are. Good morning. So glad you're here this morning. I want to say hello to you watching and listening online. And again, we want to welcome all of you in our north site this morning. So glad that you're meeting today. Uh, we're in the book of First Peter again. So if you've got your Bible this morning, we'd love you to turn to First Peter chapter 2. Well, we are definitely in the Christmas season. It has begun formally. And of course, I'm elated and I love it. And I share this story almost every year. I uh, love doing this every single year. It's a little neurotic, but I do enjoy doing it. Once a year, I love going to the busiest mall I can find at the worst time possible, and I like sitting in the middle of the mall. So I always choose Yorkdale because it's pure insanity. Everyone agree with me on that, right? Insanity. If you're in the States, you have no clue what we're talking about. Crazy, crazy mall. And so I, I, I love sitting there. Actually, in my Connect group last night, we were talking, and I had friends there this weekend, and they said, we saw something we've never seen before. Uh, we drove past a, a spot that was open. You know how it's like at Yorkdale? And some Someone was waiting to get in. They had their blinker on, and someone was actually on the road, saw the spot, drove over the median, over the grass, into the spot, and knew the person was coming in. Hashtag crazy. Okay, anyway, um, they got out of there before the fight. But I know I, I just love sitting here, and this is what I love doing. I love in the middle of all the chaos and the buying and the, the materialism, all that's going on, I love watching and listening above the din. I love listening and waiting for it to happen. As thousands of people are in Pottery Barn and Banana Republic and whatever else, I love down the hall the Salvation Army Band begins to play songs about Jesus. I love even more that when I'm sitting in a store, sitting in the middle of that chaos, they now have Christmas carols above the din of the crowd. And I listen so carefully because I love hearing the good news of great joy being proclaimed in one of the places where Jesus is forgotten the most. And I especially love, as I'm listening, to hear phrases like this. I love when O Holy Night or other ones come on, especially this phrase, as I'm sitting in Yorkdale, surrounded by thousands of people. I love these words being sung over the crowd. Long laid the world in sin and error pining. Nothing's changed. Till he appeared, and here's the phrase, and his soul, our soul, felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. See, for me, that is the picture of our culture. Busy, materialistic, consuming, always on the go, intensity all around. And if someone would just stop, sit, look up, and listen, they would actually discover that their soul has more worth than all the activity that's happening around them. The soul felt its worth. That phrase, that Christmas phrase is the fundamental expression of 1 Peter. Because we've encountered living hope, the love of God, the fear of God, uh, the resurrection of Jesus, our soul has felt its worth far beyond anything this world could offer. Do you want to say amen to that this morning? Yeah, that's, that's the truth. So Peter's been walking with us on since we have met the love of God and since our soul now knows its full worth, which is unbelievable, and since we've met the love of God and, and we're learning the fear of God and we know that the future is brighter than it is now, he begins to walk with us saying, so what does living hope look like in everyday life? 
And remember the transition point for us as a church was in chapter 2, verse 12, where Peter said this. So you live such good lives among pagans, non-Christians, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day he visits us. So what does holiness look like in every situation? What does it look like to live a profoundly godly life? What does it mean that since your soul now has deep worth because you've encountered God, what do you do as you live among all sorts of different peoples that have all different views on the world? Well, Peter says, let me answer that. And we began the journey last week. He says, this is how a Christian deals with the government. Then today he's going to say, this is how slaves actually live with their masters. And then later in the new year, when we come back to 1 Peter, he begins to say, and this is husbands and wives and how they live together, especially if you're actually living with a non-Christian partner. This is how living hope works out. Now, last week, I got a lot of feedback from last week's message. One person said, I felt sermon slapped. I didn't really mean to slap you. But really thinking this through, and remember that verse in verse 13, submit yourselves for Jesus' sake, for the Lord's sake, to every authority instituted among people. Last week we found out that Peter says that holiness, godly living, is found in one very difficult, shocking, jarring, un-North American, undemocratic word. Submit. Now what does the word submit mean? Well, it means to subject, subject yourself under, to order yourself under another according to your place in that relationship. And Peter comes along and he says, the secret to godly living, the secret to holiness, the strongest outworking of the fear of God that we're all learning, the idea of how we learn to love each other is to walk in this word called submission. Submission is the essence of the Christian movement. Submission to the Lordship of Jesus. We don't just accept him as Savior, we declare him as Lord. And when Jesus says, do something, we say, yes, we love you. Submission to God's love, that we begin to form our identity and our love in what God has done, nothing we buy, accomplish, or our, our history. Submission to the fear of God. We believe we're going to give an account, though we're saved at the end of time. And submission to any person God has placed over us, whether we like them or not. Now, does this mean blind, unchecked submission and conformity? Does it mean unthinking adherence? No, but it does mean what it means. Godliness is directly connected to your ability to submit. Now, I said last week, why in the world would any of us as North Americans ever consider such a countercultural, very uncomfortable, non-rights idea? And Peter says, well, it's simple. You do it for the Lord's sake. You do it for Jesus' sake. See, if you're a Christian this morning, some of us are, and if you believe that you're going to give an account on how you treated everyone at the end of your life, and you believe that God is going to directly ask you how you submitted to those he placed over you, you say, well, I'm going to do this for Christ. Now, Peter interacts with us and says, so if you're a Christian who knows the love of God and knows the holiness of God, and this is how you deal with the government, now he says, I want to deal with another major, very sensitive, very controversial issue. I want to deal with the question of how a slave lives with their master. Now, the slave has encountered Jesus and has been deeply transformed. 1 Peter 2.18. Slaves, submit Slaves, you submit yourself to your master. Now, I know what's happening in the crowd already. I, I can feel it online in here. People are saying, hold on, hold on, hold on. There's a million ideas and pictures coming into our mind at this moment, right? What do you mean slavery's okay? When we think about what happened south of the border, 
When we think what happened across the whole British Empire, when we think about cotton and rape and genocide and slave ships, and, and we think and we see it all around in our nation, more in the States, the ongoing tension of unresolved racial hatred because of horrific sin done in the past. It's all terrible. It's all true. There's a thousand things to work on. But when you hear the word slaves submit to your masters in Peter's day, we need to this morning understand the fundamental difference of slavery in Peter's day versus slavery in the U.S. or in Britain or slavery that we're seeing today like through sex trafficking and the stealing of organs because there actually is a massive difference. There were three groups of citizens found in the Roman Empire when Peter was writing. You had Roman citizens. They had full right and protection. Paul himself was a Roman citizen. There was another class called freemen. And freemen had most of the rights of citizen, but not all of them. But they were protected. Then the last class were the slave class or the servant class. Now, I'm just going to quote some scholars this morning so we, before we dive into Peter's command, understand the context. One scholar simply said it like this. There are deep differences between first century slavery and what happened in the new world. Number one, in Rome, racial factors played no role in slavery 2,000 years ago. Actually, education was greatly encouraged. Many slaves were more educated than their owners. This actually enhanced a slave's value. Many slaves, actually massive amounts of them, carried out sensitive and highly responsible social functions. They ran businesses and they ran whole homes. Slaves in Rome could own property. Here, no, just get your mind around this. Slaves could own property and actually could own other slaves. Think about that. Not only that, their religious and cultural traditions were the same as freeborn. And there, here's something else. Laws in Rome, no law prohibited the public assembly of slaves anywhere. And perhaps all, here's something that really is important for us this morning. The majority of urban and domestic slaves could legitimately be in, anticipate being emancipated, so leaving slavery by the end of 30. The vast majority of slaves in the Roman Empire, it was a temporary experience. Slaves were doctors and nurses and teachers and philosophers and musicians and actors and stewards and artists and secretaries. In fact, as one scholar noted, all the work in Rome proper was done by slaves. See, the Roman attitude was, what's the point of being the master of the world if we have to work? So we'll hire a bunch of slaves and they can do it all and we can just sit around and enjoy life. So slavery, though not fully ideal, is not what immediately came to your mind. Peter says, now this might not be ideal for the season of your life. Some of you have chosen slavery because you know slavery actually is better than living on the streets. Other people, many, were willing slaves the whole life. They actually loved the family they worked for. Others, it was only a temporary time. But here's what Peter addresses in his time. How does a Christian, a lover of Jesus Christ, be an amazing witness in any form to his master, while well, you're a slave. And Peter comes along and says these words, these very jarring words to us. Slaves, submit yourself to your master with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. So now that you're a Christian, and since now you have a living hope, and now, catch this, you have rooted your worth and your identity in the calling of the Father, the work of Jesus, and the presence of the Spirit, not in your economic position, and since you now fear God, and since now you know your Master truly in the end is God Himself, by Jesus and by His example, I want you to submit to your Master. 
respect your master. Treat them as you'd want to be treated. Human dignity, as I shared last week, is directly connected for a Christian to the idea that every human being is made in the image of God. So slave, remember that your master is also made in the image of God. He is or she is no less human than you. So Christian slave, honor, respect your master because he's made in the image of God and because you want to share the good news of Jesus with the one who owns you. So Peter says, submit, not only to good bosses, do you know it, but even to those masters that are harsh. Now the word harsh here is the word overbearing. It doesn't have a physical side to it. It's not like someone who's beating a slave, but it's overbearing, dishonest, moral, evil, or crooked. Actually, it's where we get our modern idea and medicine of scoliosis from. The idea is even submit to your master whose morals are bent and out of order. Now, Peter goes this far, and he says, I would like you to submit, and not only submit, I would like you to submit cheerfully. Now, that's as far as Peter goes. Well, if you read Paul, we talked about this last year in Ephesians, he goes even farther. Ephesians 6, 5, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and, notice with, and with sincerity of heart. Don't just say, I'm showing up for work and I hate it. No, you're there. Just as you would obey Jesus. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Jesus, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not even people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they're a slave or they're free. So as Christians, whether you're free or you're a slave, when we work day in and day out, we actually know that we're working for Jesus Christ himself. All we do is for Jesus, and we know in the end that Jesus is going to reward us for our faithfulness. So your master thinks, he says, that you're doing all this hard work for them, But you secretly or publicly ultimately know that you're actually serving Jesus by what you do in that house, in that business, in that place. Here's the call. Catch this. We are called to be the best employees our bosses will ever see. Why? Because we want to get a wage wage hike? No. Because we want to get ahead in life? No. Because we want a bigger car? No. We're doing this because we want to do something for Jesus. Now, by the way, side note, this is one of the ways where the most boring, mundane job you hate can get redeemed. So many people spend their life hating their job, and there's a whole other conversation about that, but I just want to remind the whole church this morning, just remember, no matter what you do, you can actually do it for Jesus, and there's reward if you do it for him. Just let that sink in. Now, all sorts of questions are probably swirling in your mind. John, there's got to be a place to say no. I mean, this makes me so uncomfortable. I don't, okay, of course there's a place to say no. Just like we found out last week about talking about the government. Christians are called to be the best citizens a country will ever see. And Christians are called to be the best employees in any house or business. But we stand up and we say no when we're commanded to sin. Remember the story of Joseph in Egypt? So Joseph was a free person, born free. His brothers had some issues. He had some issues. They sold him into slavery. Joseph now is alone. He's in Egypt. And interestingly enough, he's very similar to what Roman slavery looked like thousands of years later. 
He actually had an amazing life. He worked for a man named Potiphar. He ran his whole house. Probably Joseph's style of life and level of life was better than most Egyptians. And though he was a slave and known nothing, he ran his master's house and was very good in it. One day, Potiphar's wife went, mm-mm, right? Came over and tried seducing Joseph. Wanted him to come to bed. And Joseph decided that fearing God and worshiping God was better than obeying his master because he and she were his master. And so she said, come to bed. Joseph said, no, I will not do this. I will not covet. I will not steal. I will not lie. And I will not commit adultery. And when he did the right thing as a slave who had no legal rights at all, no protection, no HR department, everything went sideways. The wife shows up, says to Potiphar, this guy tried raping me. He loses it. Joseph is thrown into jail for obeying God. As a slave, he had no backing. But God did not forget him or leave him. God honored him. And so this is the story, and this is the call for Christians. And Peter, at this moment, 2,000 years ago, writing to this group of churches, looks injustice right in the eye. He looks suffering in the workplace right in the eye, and he gives this very unexpected response. For it is commendable... If a person bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he or she is conscious of God, what in the world could make injustice, injustice worthwhile for a Christian? Is it possible to redeem? Can good come from injustice? John, you don't understand. I'm just targeted in my workplace because I refuse to give in to gossip or lying, or my boss is out of control sometimes. Can God even work here? Yes. God is pleased in how his people react in wrong situations. In wrong situations. And this isn't just building the character of his people, but this becomes one of the most powerful places to actually be like Jesus and obey Jesus' teaching. Do not sin when you've been sinned against. We know the love of God. We know we're going to give an account at the end of time. So slaves, bear up under injustice, for you are called, ready, to be Jesus to the master who's doing wrong to you. Now, Peter says, no, don't, don't misquote me. Don't take my name in vain. He says, don't, don't think that all suffering gets you glory with God. Verse 20, how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and you endure it? If you suffer for doing good and endure it, it is commendable before God. No, don't misunderstand me. You don't create credit for suffering if you do something wrong at work. If you're stealing or lying or cheating, if you're sexually loose around the office, if you're a jerk, if you're lazy, if you're cutting corners, listen, you're going to get in trouble, and God's not going to honor you for that. Sinning, doing evil, has no value. Laziness has no place in God's kingdom. But if you suffer for doing good, then it becomes grace. It will be honored by God. And at the end of time, Jesus will literally reward you personally for bearing up under injustice. Now, don't forget what Peter's already said. Peter's already said in chapter 1, in the beginning of chapter 2, that each one of the slaves that he's writing to is deeply loved by God, has been called by God, is owned by God, and God has already... He's, listen, he said, your identity is not in your slavery. Your identity is in Jesus. Not in your job and not in what your master says. Now, I'm sure Peter, if he was sitting here this morning, would feel us getting very defensive. Walking away, not engaging. This is... This is too costly. 
This is unfair. What about my rights? What about me? What about, what about, what about? And Peter stops us in our tracks, every one of us, all of you online, north. And he gently reminds us. He grounds his call to submission in any, every form in this book to the very nature and life of Jesus himself. And then he wrote these words. To this you were called. Because Christ suffered for you. Leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. When's the last time you heard this preached in churches in North America? In North America, we hear if you become a Christian, life is good. If you become a Christian, you'll get a BMW in Jesus' name. You'll be healed immediately in this life if you have enough faith. You will be, you will be. And Peter writes the true gospel. Not only were we called, elected, predestined unto salvation, to know God, to know his love, have living hope, that our soul has felt its worth. Oh, also, you are also called by God himself formally to suffer. Whoa. And then he says, and by the way, never forget where this all began. Never forget the epicenter, the, the inception point. Jesus did this for us. He suffered for us. He loved us when we weren't looking for him. He came when we weren't even wanting him. And Jesus took our place so we can have eternal life. And if we've embraced eternal life, there must be a difference in everyday life. Oh, church, he's saying, follow closely in the very footsteps of Jesus Christ. Suffering is part of the calling of the average Christian. Jesus suffered and he is our example. Now the word example here, I learned this this week, is actually quite shocking. Because the word example doesn't mean to copy from afar. The word actually comes from primary school. Where little kids get tracing paper and they trace their letters and their numbers so they can learn how to read and write. And literally Peter is saying, you are going with your life to trace the sufferings of Christ and they're going to mark you like they marked Jesus. Jesus' half-brother, James, said this, Consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Or here's even a, a more radical call by Paul at the end of his life. Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ. Now, let's stop. Do you, let's just answer, yes or no. Do you think Paul knew Jesus by this point really deeply? Yes or no? Like, oh my goodness. And now Paul is an old man is writing these words. I want to know Jesus more than I ever have. How? I want to know the power of his resurrection and I want to participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. As one person said, Peter and Paul, for them, the suffering for Jesus' sake is not seen by, as pain, but privilege. It is a, it is a, we are living as God requires us. We're living as his slaves, suffering joyfully on Jesus' behalf. The suffering is not to be tearfully endured with gritted teeth, but joyfully because it's our calling, our high calling, and our privilege. Jesus of course, his crown in glory, but he had a crown of thorns first. Now, Peter keeps going, and he grounds all his callings of submission, this very difficult topic for us, and he does it out of Isaiah, out of the famous passage, Isaiah 52, 53, the famous prophecies about Jesus, the coming suffering servant. Jesus, our suffering slave. 
And that's why he chooses this, because he knows that every single slave receiving this letter would immediately relate to Jesus being a slave himself. And Peter reminds all the churches and us this morning by saying this in verse 22. Jesus committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. Oh no, Jesus is God in flesh, totally sinless. Listen, he never lied, he never told falsehoods, there was no inconsistency between doctrine and life, there was no ulterior motives. Jesus, despite his sheer, unquestionable holiness and goodness, suffered for just being good. It says when they hurled insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. You think about this. When he was whipped and spat upon and mocked in his trials, and then he was dragged, and then he was crucified, he did not retaliate, not even once. You know, he made no threats. I'd never thought about this. Can you imagine Jesus on the cross looking at the crowd going, oh, you just wait. Do you know who I am? Do you know who, like, I'm going to get you. In three days, you're done. When I come back from the dead, you're, you're all going to burn in hell. Like, he could have done this. He could have caused such profound anxiety in his enemies. And he had every right to. And he said nothing except, Father, what? Forgive them. They do not know what they're even doing. He never raised the sword. He never called on the legions of angels to cut them down. And what's so profound about this and what this is so important is he did something more radical, more life-changing, and actually much more scary for his enemies. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He delivered himself to his father's hands. And this is exactly what Jesus knew was going on. He knew that by giving himself over to the father, he knew that his enemies, those that were wrong, would either become his followers, and he had taken the bullet for them, so their forgiveness was placed on his body, or at the end of time, every single one of them will personally have to give an account to Jesus' Father for their injustice to him. Let me ask you the question. What can you do that's more scary and more consuming about a boss you hate or a pastor? Tell me. Than putting them into the hands of God and saying, you deal with them. You deal with them. I will not take revenge. I will submit like Jesus submitted, and I will leave judgment under God because God never makes a mistake. Peter comes and he says, now I want to remind every one of us the amazing outworking of Jesus' submission. Remember, Jesus who is fully God, who always is God, eternally praised, who has never been created, submitted himself to the Father and submitted himself to the Spirit and submitted himself to us. He himself, verse 24, bore our sins in his body on that tree so that we might die to sin And live for righteousness. And by his wounds, you have been, past tense, healed. God the Father counted our sins against Christ. And that happened in a place of submission. 
Jesus carried, he bore, he endured our suffering on the cross. The idea of substitution, the punishment you and I deserve, is taken on by Jesus, and so by his wounds we are healed. What does that mean? We have no, sin no longer owns us. Death doesn't have the final say. We're now children of God. We will be partially healed in this life, and when we're physically raised from the dead, we will fully be healed. We will look God in the face, and we'll never fear him because he is holy love, and we have said yes to his son. By his wounds you've been healed. He says, I just want to remind you that Jesus rejected revenge and getting back. And because he did that, we all get eternal life. For you were like sheep that had gone astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseers, uh, overseer of your soul. We were all sheep that had walked away, dumb and stupid, heading towards the cliff, right? But Jesus came and got us. And we love Jesus and we have a living hope and we've experienced the love of God and we've tasted and seen that God is good and we know that our soul has worth because we've encountered Jesus and this is beautiful. And Peter says, I want to remind you, slaves, I want to remind you at the end of the day that Jesus is in this moment, in that work environment where you have no rights, he is your personal shepherd and he is your personal overseer. You know, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd In the book of Ezekiel, God himself is called the good, compassionate, and faithful shepherd. And Jesus comes along and he he takes the name of shepherd from the Father. How can he do that? Because he is actually God in flesh. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. And you want to imagine getting this as a slave? And you hear that Jesus, no matter what your master does to you, he is your shepherd and he will lay you down and he is going to help you and he's never going to leave you or forsake you. No matter what your master does, no matter how you have to suffer, Jesus is your shepherd. He's going to make all things right. But not only shepherd, it's interesting, most of us who have grown up in church have never named the name of Jesus as overseer. This is one of the most beautiful titles of Jesus we rarely sing about or preach about. Jesus is our elder. He's the one that guards us and teaches us and oversees us and leads us and protects us. But even that name implies that we're all okay with submission because Jesus is our head and we're not. We we will never be lost in wrong situations. He oversees us. He guards us. He cares for us. He's watching. You know, one scholar simply said, you want to know the summary of this part? Here's the one sentence. Slaves are to please God by submitting to their masters because of the example of Jesus Christ, period. No HR, no protests, no right rallies, period. Now, I know what's happening in the room. Mm -mm -mm. What about the masters? God better talk to those bosses. He does. If you actually read the scriptures, it's amazing. When people who are bosses become Christians, they actually get the exact same conversation as the slaves do. This is what's so profound. Many people actually believe the idea of slavery is beginning to be undermined by the Christian movement right now by Paul, who's writing in Philemon, Colossians, and Ephesians. Listen to what Paul writes to masters. Colossians 4.1, masters. You provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Sit down. uh -uh. You've got a boss too. Even more interesting in Ephesians 6, 9, he says, and masters, you treat your slaves in the same way. Do you know how revolutionary that is? 
Paul says to masters, you have to treat your slaves in the same way I've just asked them to treat you. You don't threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and your master in heaven, and there is, oh, this is wild, there is no favoritism with him. When you die, you think you'd bring the master card? No, no, no. When you die, the Christian slave and the Christian boss are equal and are both judged. And you're saying, well, John, how do we apply this today? Because we're definitely not saying that this is a justification for slavery like we're actually fighting even in this church globally. No. But here's what we begin to get down to. This is how Christians are commanded to live in a non-Christian work environment or any environment. This is a direct challenge to a world which we all make up that is preoccupied with personal rights. Just like we're called to be the best citizens the government will ever see, even when we disagree with them wholeheartedly, so the same we are called to be the best employees our company or family would ever see. People full of light. People that do right when nobody is looking. We don't gossip. We're not political to get ahead. We don't throw people under the bus. We don't lie. We don't cheat. We don't slander. We don't get drunk on Friday nights with colleagues. We're not stealing. And we never cut corners. Christians are called to be the most diligent workers a business would ever see. And when your boss is not around, you don't malign your boss or join in with others on Facebook or personally gossiping, lying, or exaggerating about them or anyone else. You are a person of light. Let me say it again. We are called by the living God of heaven and earth to be the best employees no matter where you work, your friends will ever see. And we are called to give over all we do to Jesus because we're actually working for Jesus, not for our masters. We are called to do our jobs, and when we're doing it, we're called not to sin when the boss is around and when they're not around because we fear God, we know we're going to give an account, and oh, here it is, and we want our bosses to ask us about the good news of Jesus because we want our bosses to become our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now think about this. This is, what, this is what Paul says. Obey your bosses, not just to win favor with them when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. You serve at work wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Now by the way, if you're a boss, by the way, you have to think this through too. Now, I want to make this very clear. I'm not saying that if you're in a horrific, abusive environment and you can get out, you can't get out. Of course. But what I'm saying is this. The only time we stand up directly when we're not comfortable with the situation is when we are commanded to sin. We work for our bosses and we even work for those and honor our bosses that are harsh, morally wrong. And by the way, as a Christian, you are going to suffer under bosses that are not right. We are called to be the best employees, but we only stand up when we are commanded by our bosses and our masters to sin. And at that moment, we say, no, I fear God, not you. When your boss tells you at work you cannot obey God, we kindly, lovingly, with conviction say, no, God is my master. The Bible is my ultimate source for faith, life, practice, and business. And in the end, I'm going to give an account before God, and I will not sin for you. Why? Because of worship. Because like we saw in verse 19, because we are conscious of God. 
Now let me speak to a lot of you who are bosses here this morning. As a Christian, you're called to be the most amazing boss your employees will ever see. You are never called to lie, cheat, or misuse your power because you do have more power than your employees. You are called to be the most holy and godly person when everyone's looking and when no one's looking. And since we are all loved by God and we all have living hope and we all fear God and we know we're all going to give an account on Judgment Day, you should be working like, like being the most amazing boss your employees will ever see because you want to share the gospel with them. So here's my question this morning. Christian, are you, whether you work in the home or in a formal business, are you the best employee your boss has ever seen? Christian, do you work for Jesus himself or just for your boss or what you can get out of them? Here's a greater question. Are you willing to submit for the Lord's sake? Are you willing to suffer and not even get what you deserve in your job in the name of Jesus? Not get that promotion. Not get the honor. Because to get honor, you'd have to sin to get it. Or not get involved in things where you know they're sinful, and by doing so, you become the target. See, here's the question. Are you willing to, no, unplug your ears. Are you willing to suffer for Jesus because he suffered for you? Are you willing to follow Jesus in his actions? Instead of entrusting himself to himself, he entrusted himself to God. Let me say it again. What could you do that's more scary, loving, and profound than giving over those you do not like or are unjust or unjust around you to the living God of heaven and earth? Would it not be even more amazing that if because you actually submit and you work hard even in bad situations that your boss would actually become the one who actually asks you about Christ and you give them the good news of Jesus and you work with sincerity of heart and they became your brother and sister? Is their eternal life worth more to you than your rights? See, this is the call. That we submit. And notice what Peter said at the beginning. Because God also placed your boss over you. We submit to all institutions that God has established. God has placed the government over us. And God has placed bosses over us. And our submission to them, even the wrong ones, is a living witness to Christ because we know our reward is not called RRSPs or a cottage. It's called glory. Submit and find holiness. Submit and find joy. Submit and find Jesus. By the way, this doesn't just apply to the workplace. I mean, this is the conversation for every local church on earth, right? I mean, this is how we actually love each other. Submission is the glue and the oxygen in every local church. Let me just read what another pastor preached. If a church would learn to give themselves in self-sacrificing surrender to one another, there would never be a church split. When the vote doesn't go according to a person's plans, when a choir or whatever does not get behind a certain special service, when the pastor speaks on topics that I or you would not choose. Never. Right? When others are elevated to positions of leadership, you think you should be in. In all of these moments, listen, individual Christians across the church are confronted with the option 
of cross-like living and submission or something else. Either you choose selfishness and you grumble and you divide or you choose cross-like living, ready, here it is, by conceding God's will to other people and other plans you don't agree with. Cross-like living refuses to bring up the past in a church. I told you so. I warned you about this. Even when it appears to be misguided. He says, I have heard people grouse, complain for years about a pastor who was called. In doing so, they continue to express a selfishness and a lack of cross-like living. Submission to pastors and elders is the same conversation as your boss at work. Now, I know I'm the pastor up here preaching this, but I submit to the elders myself. We are called in this church to acknowledge those that God has placed over us in the family, at work, at church, and in our government. And we continually are invited by Jesus into a moment of submission to become like Christ. As churches grow, as ministries change, there is continually the option from grumbling, dividing, biting each other, saying, what about my rights? What about our history? Or, oh my goodness, Jesus is inviting me once again to learn how to be like him. Do you see why this is so threatening to everything that we hold dear in our culture? Here's a very simple thing. I said this last week, let me say it again. This is the major moment. The secret to holiness, the secret to fearing God, the critical glue to loving each other, the critical idea of walking in love is submission. Submission to Christ, where every one of us who are Christians will say automatically, Jesus, I will obey you no matter what you ask of me. I love you and I trust you. Like I said last week, submission also is when we say, I choose that God's work in my life is what makes up my identity. Nothing else. Submission to the fear of God and submission to any person that God has placed over us. Simply put, Jesus, and I said this last week, I'm going to say it again. I'm not doing this for effect, for a moment. Jesus, the Lord of C4, is coming close to have an ongoing conversation in this season of our church about the lack of submission he sees across our community. In very small and large ways, Jesus is coming to our church like he did in the book of Revelation to unique congregations. He says, I want to free C4 Church, Ajax, Durham, all of us online. I want to free you from the grip of insubordination and rebellion that you think brings you life, but it keeps bringing you death. He says, I want submission to grow at C4 in a way it has never been seen in 30 plus years. He says, I want to see submission in families, in workplaces, and how you treat the government I have instituted in this country. Lack of submission leads to bondage and never brings freedom. And like I said last week, lack of submission is the shadow between us and God, us and each other, us and the church, and those we're even called to reach. We live in a culture where we are told that our God-given right is our rights. And I'm telling you, our God-given rights are one thing, submission. We as Christians have declared 
that we believe that the kingdom of God has come, the reign and rule of God on earth in our life as it is in heaven. And at the core of loving the kingdom is submission. When I was preparing this message this week, I was trying to work through in my head how to end this because there's a thousand conversations that will stem out of this, good, bad, and ugly. And I was reminded again very poignantly of what I just referred to a few seconds ago. Where in the book of Revelation, Jesus walks among the lampstands, which is a symbol he walks among local churches. And it says that he came to each church and he said to this church, I'm so pleased with this and I'm so unpleased with this and I want to commend you for this and I want you to start doing that. And in the middle of that, that old verse came back to my mind. And here it is. Would you listen closely? It says, I stand at the door and knock. And whoever would open the door and let me and I will come in and sit with them and eat with them and them with me. Now, if you grew up in the church, you know that that verse usually is used to say, this is how you become a Christian. But it has nothing to do with non-Christians. It's written to the church. And the image is that Jesus is knocking on the door of a church and also personal lives. But here's the crazy thing. The doorknob is only on the inside. There's only one doorknob. And the Lord of heaven and earth, the one we sing to and we love and we give to, is literally knocking on the door of those he already owns. And he's saying, oh, will you not come and approach the door, open the knob, and let me come in. And as I was praying for myself last week about submission, I was one of the first people up here at Elder's Prayer and praying for our church. Here's the image that came so, like, just poignantly in my mind. I saw this room, and Jesus is knocking at the door about submission to our whole church. And I saw some of you literally in the back corner, as far as you could be away, saying, don't even talk to me about this. You don't know how hurt I've been by people, by elders, by pastors, by bosses, by parents. No! And you were like, I will not talk to you. Other people, you're sitting there and you're folding, you're just like, you're going to threaten my theology? You're going to threaten my view on family? No, I'm not doing this. Others of you are literally, the image is barricaded up against the door, like trying to stop him from coming in. You don't realize that there's no doorknob on the other hand, but you think. Other people, your hand is on the door and you're like, I'm terrified to open this door. And a few of you have already done it. Here's all I want to say to you. Who is Jesus? Is he not everything we sing about in this church? Is he not everything the scriptures say? Don't just love him then. Trust him. Every person in this church who is a follower of Jesus should be able to stand up no matter the pain and fear or your view of you should be able to walk to that door and take that doorknob and say Jesus you may most what you are most welcome in this room and I you can speak to me about submission all day long I will listen because I know that what you do and what comes out of your mouth only brings me life trust Jesus, church, 
Invite him into your view on the government. Invite him into your marriage. Invite him into your view of the church and leadership. Invite him willingly into your employment. And you say, Jesus, you speak to me. You tell me where I'm wrong. You tell me where my theology's off. You tell me where my North Americanism is actually stronger and is an idol to actually what you're asking. I know that if I participate with you, I will have joy and I will be a good witness. So I open the door and you come in. You come in and you sit with me and let's eat. And I'm going to give you all my crap. I'm going to talk to you about everything that bothers me about this submission thing. And then you're going to look me in the eye and I know what's going to happen. And I don't want it, but I know you're going to look at me and I'm going to see love in your eyes and I'll never be the same. I'm just so scared. Just let him in. Let him in because submission is the place where we become like Jesus and we don't just sing about it anymore. So pray, pray, pray with me. You in North Durham, pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, one who submitted himself to the Father, the one who is our holy example. Now, Lord Jesus Christ, hear our prayers today. Oh, this is so against everything we've been taught. And we're scared because lots of us sitting in here don't like who's over us. And others of us have been deeply hurt and we have wonderings. But just there's that image, right? You're knocking at the door. You're saying, see for you, keep praying for renewal and revival and awakening. Well, I'm knocking. Open the door. So Lord, help us. Remember we're dust. Remember we're hurt. Remember our history, our pain. Just remember it all. But I'm going to ask, Lord Jesus, help this church to open the door. And Lord, make this church marked by godly, unnatural, life-giving, glorious submission. And may the Lordship of Jesus bring joy across this church freedom across this church, unity in this church, witness in our workplace, bringing marriages back from the dead, love for a government, work we pray. Oh God, help us to love you and love your word more than our rights. We pray this in the name of God the Father who called us, God the Son who submitted for us, and God the Holy Spirit who will give us the ability to be like Jesus. Lord Christ, Lord Jesus, do this work among us. In Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.